Amen. Join me in John chapter 4, verses 27 through 45. We're picking up in the middle of an interaction here between Jesus and the woman at the well. We could have spent numerous weeks on these passages alone, some of the most beautiful in all of Scripture. In this week, we will see, I think, uh, why we divided the text um, in the way that we did. The title of the sermon is White for Harvest. White for Harvest. As you're finding your way there to John chapter 4, I want to share with you a little bit about my wife. It seems like it's becoming a running theme for me every time I get in the pulpit to share a little bit something else about my bride, as if though you don't know her well enough yet. A um, little fun thing about her is that my wife likes to save things. What I mean by that is in this move, uh, I learned that we've saved everything I feel like that we've ever owned. But what I mean specifically about what she likes to save uh, are things that are typically discarded or things that would be thrown away. Uh, we go to a lot of estate sales and she finds things to save and to repurpose them. She likes to save things that they may save us money in the future as to not have to buy things all the more. Uh, take, for example, there is this um, the door that is from an old, um, I guess it's an old antique house because there's paint chips that are just flaking. I mean, if you even look at the door, the paint chips are falling off of it. And it's been sitting in our bedroom for a while. We're going to use it as a slider. And uh, I'm not bitter at all that I went to move it the other day and it knocked over my TV and broke my TV. I'm not going to be mentioning that because that's not the point. The point of it is, is that she saves things in order to uh, save us money. She is the uh, savior of the island of misfit antiques, I guess. But she saves them for a reason. Uh, not only so that way that they'll just sit there in their uselessness, that's my fault, I should have put the door up, but she saved them that they may save us money in the future, to put them to work, to put them to use. Now, why do I share that? Besides, uh, it's on the forefront of my mind because I see it every single day when I wake up. I believe that's the truth of the text this morning, that we are the misfits where the things that are left and broken in our souls and that Christ saved us, not so that way we would just sit and to gather more dust or to have our proverbial paint chips flake away, but that we would in turn be saved to enter into a process of saving, not that we save souls, but that we're soul winners. I believe Christ saved you to labor and soul winning. That's our theme of our, our text this morning. And now that, that word, soul winning, is one that's kind of lost its luster over the past couple of years. It's uh, one that I was reminded of in a Table Talk magazine reading from Burke Parsons. And soul winning is what we here at the branch would call living on mission. We track in when we say that we live our entire life in a mission to seek and to save the lost this was Jesus' purpose in Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Our life is to be leveraged for the purpose, now that we have been saved, to pour out our life to save. In every interaction, in every relationship, in your job, in your family, God has placed you there that you may be a minister of reconciliation. I believe this is why we separated our text as we did. Last week was all about satisfaction with the woman at the well. When her going to draw water from this well and seeking to be satisfied temporarily and Jesus was pointing to the internal, into the satisfaction of her soul that was needed. And as we pick up with Jesus leaving off in verse 26 saying, I who speak to you am he, meaning the Messiah. We'll see this transition in the text from the woman seeking satisfaction to have already found it and what she does now that she has been saved. Join me in the reading of God's word, picking up in verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, who do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her jar 
and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months? Then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Father, in these verses, would you show us yourself? How beautiful you are. And what you have called us now as the redeemed ones to do. God, we are dependent upon you this morning as this message of living on mission or to share the gospel or to live a life worthy of the gospel is one we hear so often that it can become as if the white noise when there is a harvest white and ripe for the picking before us. Would you prepare our hearts to receive this message? Would any guilt that we're walking in be washed away as we behold your cross? Any pride that we're walking in of perhaps already doing this be vanquished as we see that we're called to do it yet once more? Would you encourage us? Would you shape us? Would you inform us? Would you knit us together in love that we would walk in the purpose for which you created us? So Father, would we see you magnified in the preaching of your word? And would our lives reflect that as we live here, as we leave here? So Father, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So let's remember, Jesus is on his way to Galilee. As we saw at the end of the text, he is going to Galilee. He is leaving Jerusalem, and he's in this town in between towns in Samaria, a place where the Jews would often go around and not want to spend time in. And yet we see such fruitful ministry here as he interacts with a woman at a well. The first thing I would have us notice is the labor, the labor. Notice again with me in verse 27, as the disciples come back, they're entering into this interaction. Have you ever entered into an interaction where you see a group of people standing and they're talking? Perhaps you're like me and a little bit nosy and want to know what they're talking about. You want to enter into that conversation, but the disciples here have no intent in doing so. In fact, verse 27 says that they marveled that he was talking with a woman. What chauvinism. What belittling of this woman that even in a Jewish culture in this time that it was deemed improper for a man to be talking to a woman that was not a relative in public without an escort. We see this same type of belittling of women and chauvinism in culture across the world even today. Notice they don't even acknowledge her. They don't ask her even what do you seek? Why are you talking with her? Now, why do I say that there is a labor here? Are these not disciples? 
Are these not the apostles, the one that Christ has called to go out into the earth to advance his gospel, and yet there is an opportunity right in front of them in this woman that they don't even see? I wonder how often there are opportunities for us to enter into faithful ministry, to faithfully labor in the gospel, and yet the people in front of us are just flesh and bone to us. They're another face in the crowd. They're just someone else in your class. They're just that other coworker. They're just that other employee. They're just that other person you see. When we forget the reality that we're not just flesh, but we're eternal souls with eternal destinations, walking along a path headed towards glory in Christ and enjoyment forever, or they are standing upon the precipice of an eternity in hell apart from God. Every face you see is a face that is either redeemed and is a brother and sister or someone that you have an opportunity to faithfully labor and share the gospel with. She was ignored. So what does she do? She's not put out. She's not melancholy. She's not saying these great men who are following this Christ are ignoring me, so man, I don't have anything to do. What does she do? Verse 28, so the woman left her jar and went into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? She entered into faithful labor. We may be asking, where did salvation occur in this passage for her to leave and to go? It occurred not when she went into the city. That's work-based. Salvation for this woman occurred when she left the jar. The reason she went to that well was to be satisfied and she found something that would satisfy her all the more and she couldn't help but in that moment leave and go. Are we so distracted by everything else that we have in our life that we have forgotten that is the purpose for which we draw air to glorify God and to bring others into it? What a contrast here. I can't imagine how John writing this felt as he was one of those disciples that ignored her. Consider with me, if you would, that these disciples went to labor into the city, and what do they bring back from that city but bread for the flesh? And this woman goes into that same very city, and what does she bring back but souls to Christ? That is our labor. That is our labor. George Whitfield, the great evangelist, says, God forbid that I should travel with anybody a quarter of an hour without speaking Christ to them. It's 15 minutes. If we were to count the minutes in our life, if we were to but count them, as Psalm teaches us, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. If we were but to believe, James, when it says that our life is a vapor, we would not waste these minutes in anything that is not a labor unto the Lord. How guilty am I of this? How guilty are we of this? To partake in things that are perhaps, yes, enjoyable, in of themselves not sinful, like watching a football game, or spending time on social media, or playing video games, or watching a movie, but can we continue on in that list? And if we were to compare our lives of the minutes given over to the things that satisfy self compared to the minutes given into the labor of the Lord, would we be content to stand before our Father and give an account for them that time? I know I would not be. You see, my aim in this message is not to teach you anything new. My aim in this message is for us to see this truth and to believe this truth in order to walk in this entirely differently. If the gospel of John has been given to us that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ and so have eternal life, we have got to do something with this message to take it to this world. I aim to divorce us from anything that would remove us from what we see our true labor is. I toyed with even using that word labor as much as I will today. Because when we talk about labor, what's the first thing that comes to our mind but sweat, toil, 
misery, pain. It's keeping us from doing something that we want to do because we have forgotten the purpose of true labor. Pastor Bailey put together us in our DNA content, uh, our virtue and vanity, and work is one of the most beautiful sections in there that God has given to us to glorify him in. I walked through it with both of my DNAs this week, and you perhaps can hear that in this message that we have been given work. Work was not a curse of the fall. We had work previous. What better work could we labor in than the labor of love? To see the one who truly worked in Christ, that lived the life of righteousness you couldn't, that died to self, that bore your cross, that took away your, your sin, that took away your shame, so that way your labor is now all the more free. I draw your attentions here at the outset to this. Catch this with me, right here, 2 Corinthians 5.11. Turn there with me. I want you to see this with your own eyes. I contemplated the sermon theme being this, believe Christ reconciled you to be a minister of reconciliation because of this passage. I believe this is what's being taught here. But I want us to see this, the ministry that we've been given, the labor that we have been given now that we're in Christ. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Hear the labor there. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known to all, also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance, not about what's in the heart. Catch this, verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, he's saying, if we seem outside of our mind because we can't help but tell you about Christ, if we seem to be obsessed about this, if every conversation you have with us seems to be about Christ, he says, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. But if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, and those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is what we have been given. He's not just talking about himself, Paul here, as an apostle. We have been given this ministry of reconciliation. Have you been reconciled to God? Are you in Christ? Head, yes. Yes. Are you in Christ? Yes. What are you now? A minister of reconciliation. What are the implications of this? Because we know this. None of this, I'm looking at your faces and I see it. None of this is new. But the implications of it must change everything about our lives. And in a fellowship as we live in that is so close, we can see whether or not these implications have actually taken root or not. What are the ramifications? You have been a minister since the moment you were saved. The moment the woman at the well was saved, what did she do besides leave her jar and go into the city? Whether you believe it or not, whether you recognize it or not, whether you feel weary or not, whether you're discouraged or feeling ill-equipped, you are a minister of reconciliation. You carry Christ in your very bones. The very Spirit of God lives within you. He has put his word in your mouth and he has strengthened you, emboldened you, and given you life in him that you may share that. You are a minister. What does that mean? It means you will give an account for your ministry one day. 
It's appointed for man once to live and once to die. After this, the judgment, you, I, we as the Branch Church Milledgeville, you individually in your ministry, me as your pastor will stand before the judgment throne and he will say, what did you do with my name and my word? You will give an account. I seek to arouse us from a slumber to this truth this morning. Many of you see this, and it has been an encouragement to me as your pastor over the past few weeks that you see this, and you're pouring out your life for those who don't know Christ. You're inviting them into this fellowship. You're sharing the gospel with them. You're asking me, how do I better evangelize to them? When do we get to do street evangelism again? How do I evangelize my kids who don't know yet know Christ? How do I share with coworkers? He will give in a faithful account one day, but if those aren't describing you, you too will give an account. And I pray that I will receive one, that you will receive one where Christ looks at us and says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done. The simple ramification of this is you need a church to equip you. Ephesians 4, 13 says he's given the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints, that's you, for works of ministry. You have a work of ministry. Do you see those faces in your classroom, in your fraternity, in your job, in your family, on the streets of Milledgeville as your ministry. You need this church body to equip you. You must demand of me as an elder, of all of your elders, of us as deacons, to equip you to do so. But make no mistake, the woman at the well did not use it as an excuse to say, I've been saved for five seconds, what could I do? If you feel that level of justification, look at her for a gentle rebuke, but if you feel that level of inadequacy of who, who am I, who could, what could I do? This woman at the well was known in that city for being promiscuous, for known as being a sinner, for shame, and yet she went into the public square and declared Christ because in her weakness, Christ was made strong. Amen. In your weakness, in your stumbling over the word. Christ is revealed as strong because it's the power of God unto salvation, the gospel, not your eloquence. You're called to sow a seed and labor. Why do you labor? Paul answers in 1 Timothy 4.10, for to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Why do you toil and strive in this labor? Because your hope is set on God. Not on results. Your hope that your God sees and cares and will save and, and notices you and will take account of your faithfulness and will put the words in your lips to speak that will burn the gospel fire within your soul. Your hope is set on that. This is why we toil and strive when even it can feel like you're having the same conversation over and over and over again with someone and it feels like that gospel is just hitting a proverbial wall when you're sharing the gospel with someone and they pivot the conversation as the woman at the well pivoted the conversation, why do you continue? Why must you continue? How do you continue but for the hope of God poured out in your hearts through Christ Jesus that he saved you and that he is mighty to save the one standing or sitting in front of you? Man, I, I want us to believe that. The gospel of John beckons us to believe that, that is our labor. And it's tiring, isn't it? It's wearisome. But there's joy to be found because there is refueling in labor. Amen. Verses 31 through 34. 
as this woman is going into faithful labor, the disciples are ignorant, lack of a better word. They still are consumed with Christ, which none of us would be any better if Christ were here. Our focus would probably be on him. They were urging him in verse 31, Rabbi, eat. But notice his response, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And they look at each other and say, did someone bring him food? It reminds me of the woman at the well last week. Like, hey, this well is pretty deep, man. You have nothing to draw it with. It's funny to read scripture in light of who we are because we would ask those same questions. But Jesus answers in such a beautiful response in verse 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Man is not to live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. How does this laborer, Christ, he's laboring in ministry, is he not? He's just left Jerusalem at the temple, at the feast. He's on his way to Galilee and he's not stopping and resting at the well. He's laboring there. How is he refueling? Do you think how Jesus refuels is how we should refuel? Is that a fair correlation? My food my nourishment, my refueling is to do the will of him who sent me. So often I hear this phrase is difficult or impossible to pour from an empty cup. Now I'm not saying there's no such uh, times that are necessary as rest and Sabbath joyfully. Pastor Bailey's on his rest now. We see it in through Levitical law, the land would even be given a jubilee year of rest in the seventh year. But hear me, hear Christ rather. My food, my sustenance, my refueling is to do the will of him who sent me. If you hope to continue in faithful ministry, continue in faithful ministry. Proverbs 11.25, whoever brings blessing will be enriched and he who waters will himself be watered. There is a refueling as you are doing what you are designed to do for the purpose you were designed to do it. If ministry for you is taxing, if evangelizing is taxing, if serving this body is taxing, if dying to self is taxing, we have got something out of order. We don't do those things for any other reasons besides worship of God. And if you do it in that proper order, it will be refueling to you. I'm not saying it won't be difficult, it won't be hard, but it will bring life. Proverbs teaches us this truth as well. Proverbs 3 Five and six are verses many of us have memorized. Trust in the Lord with all of your strength. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he'll direct your paths. But we miss the next two verses. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Fear of the Lord. Fear is fuel. Fear a holy, reverential worship of God as you fear God and do as he calls and commands you to do. That is fear of God. And Proverbs says it will be a refreshment to your bones. You don't need time away from doing as God has designed you to do in order to be refueled. You may refuel temporarily with Temporary satisfaction, if last week's premise remains true, that true satisfaction is found in the Lord, why would you be able to refuel in anything else besides the Lord because nothing else can satisfy? Your satisfaction for what? Rest, rejuvenation, refreshment. Do we not see this truth? Faithful service in sowing and tilling is done so God would rejuvenate you. Hosea 10, 12 Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love. 
Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Hosea here is talking about not just faithful service outwardly, but also faithful service unto the Lord. If you seek to be refueled by the Lord, is breaking up that fallow ground. If you are a farmer and you have to let your field lie for a while, thorns and thistles and stones and all kinds of impediments would build up in the way of your fruitful labor, labor and you're to till it up. So what? So it may rain and nourishment may soak up in that ground. And the same thing is true for you. If you have lied dormant so long that you resemble not a fruitful field, but rather apathetic field where fruit is dying on the vine, bust open that ground, continue to go forward, till, sow, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. I pray that you would believe Christ saved you into the labor of soul winning. It's a labor. It's tough. It's difficult. But what promise do you have from Christ? Do you find yourself weary this morning? Do you find yourself tired and not knowing how you're going to make it another day, perhaps in your Christian life? If I can't even make it in my own life, how am I supposed to serve someone else? If that is you, what promise do you have in Christ? Come to me, all who are weary, all who are heavy laden, and find rest for your soul. Rest as you Follow Christ and take up your cross in the labor of love to pour out your life for the glory of God and the gospel. This labor, too, is a joyful labor. This labor has been redeemed from the pits of melancholiness. Labor often to you may seem like, here we go again, clock in, nine to five, or I'm at Chick-fil-A again. I'm sitting in this lecture again with this professor that puts me to sleep. It may seem burdensome. I would encourage you that there is even joy to be found in that labor. Verse 35, do, not, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? In agricultural, if you're not familiar with it, there's a time to sow and a time to reap, as Ecclesiastes 3 teaches us. There's time to plant the seeds, and there's time after a four-month period of nourishment and rain and growth to harvest. What does Christ say in verse 35? Notice there's four imperatives here at the end of verse 35. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. He's talking to his disciples here as these townspeople from Samaria are coming back to them at the well. Imagine with me, if you could, how hot it is in this desolate place that there's a well there in the middle of a city and dust is kicking up as people are walking and Jesus is trying to draw these disciples' attention to the true labor that is in front of them is not to just think about the flesh and blood but the eternal of that woman who left and went to the city and people were coming back. People are coming back to Jesus and it's a hot civilization and a culture so they would be wearing white robes and white tunics. They're coming back to Jesus and he is saying that the fields are white for harvest. When wheat was ready to be harvested, it would have this white hue to it. And Jesus is saying to them, you know when a harvest is ready. You can tell by the look of it. Look, can you not tell by the look of it that these people who are coming in are white for harvest, that there are souls to be won, that there is ministry to be done, and how joyful it is that you don't have to wait four months. You can harvest now, that there's joy to be found now. And I would encourage you to never walk into a crowded place the same. What do I mean by that? By thinking of this verse, every time you walk across front campus, every time you're walking through GCSU, every time you walk into your office, every time you walk into a school, every time you walk somewhere, you're in a crowded place at a football arena, when you're 
when you're thinking of this eternal perspective, I can't tell you how overwhelming joy and responsibility will settle in on your soul when you see that there are souls to be one. I, was sharing, I don't know if it was with my DNA this week. I know I shared with my bride. I, I want us to feel woe to us if we don't preach the gospel. What are these signs that Milledgeville, that your family, that your friends are white for harvest? What are the signs? You're in their life. They're listening to you. They're watching you. They're asking you questions. If they're kids, they're respecting you. The influence that you have in their life. Do you see the harvest, church? Do you believe that there is a harvest? Christ is telling the disciples and telling us in verse 36, already the one who reaps is receiving wages. Imagine that instant gratification. Is that not, man, something we love in this generation? Instant gratification. Jesus is saying there that there is instant gratification in this joyful labor because they're already receiving wages. The gospel went out and this woman shared the gospel and now people are coming back. How do we think the church has grown to the point that it is today? Faithful labor. Men and women going and sharing and believing that when they share that it is effective and that's their wage that you receive. What, what do you receive when you work but a salary, a wage? It's what you deserve because of time put in. And here's the beautiful part of joyful labor in the ministry of the gospel. We don't deserve anything. God deserves all glory. And what we put in, he gives to us as a wage we don't deserve. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. But thanks be to God, he doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us joy in ministry. Have you experienced that joy? Verse 37, the saying here holds true, one sows and another reaps. The ministry that you're entering into can sometimes feel difficult. You can feel isolated as you're sharing the gospel with a friend or family member or as you're looking to disciple your own children. Whatever your faithful ministry is, it can feel discouraging until you remember that truth that you're not the first one to sow seeds there. God, being good and gracious, seeking to save his children in this case of evangelism or disciple, has brought people before you. Even if you're discipling your kids, parents, your parents discipled you before, you're entering into their labor. They shared the gospel with you college students, someone has shared the gospel with that coworker, that student, maybe even that teacher before. And if not, you're entering into labor of those who shared the gospel with you. We're in this together. And sometimes when you're isolated, it can feel as if though there's no joy until you remember. This is a promise that is the reversal of the curse. Micah 6.15, you shall sow but not reap. You shall tread olives but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes but not drink wine. Saying you can labor but you're not gonna get any of the benefits of your labor. You can labor but you're not gonna see any of the fruit of your labor. In Christ, we have a promise that we will see even if it's minimal fruit, we will see fruit in faithfulness. If you labor not unto yourself for your own glory, your own self-interest, but you labor unto the Lord, there will be joy. What are the consequences of this joyous labor? We can labor despite all present difficulties because the Lord promises we will have a joyful harvest. Even when things are difficult, even when it feels as if though you have no energy, not a word of encouragement. If some of us heartily amen last week, people annoy you. 
we can have joy. Psalm 126.5, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing the sheaves with him. If you are so hard-pressed in your service that you're to the point of tears and shedding them, there is a beautiful balm for your soul here. And, and catch this, if that's not you, where you're at the point of wanting to serve so much that you're in tears for the ones that you want to see to know come Christ, come to know Christ, doesn't mean you can't be. When's the last time that you spent time in tear-soaked intercession for someone who does not know Christ? You can't fake that. You can't make that happen. But if you're sowing in tears, you will reap in joy. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've seen countless faces in, in this congregation sit before me in tears, talking about wanting to know a loved one, a relative, know Christ, a parent, a sibling. I encourage you to continue in that labor. Let us know how we can come alongside of you in that labor. To not give up, to trust God. To not be distracted with all the other busyness of true Yes, labor of a job or family, but seeing as this labor is what we're all called to, and you would do so in perseverance. There's a beautiful promise in our labor of why it can be joyful. Why can I say all of your labor be joyful? It's your job to labor, God causes the growth. God causes the growth. Your responsibility is not to change someone's mind. It's not to have a well-put-together argument. It's not to be just so compassionate that they see how much you love them that it melts their heart. It's 1 Corinthians 3.6. This is Paul speaking. I planted, Apollos watered, but God caused the growth. You're entering into the labor perhaps of someone else that they planted and you're just watering. And sometimes you get to see the fruit, which is joyous. My brother Peter here, seeing him come to know the Lord this past year, Ryan, the Miller's kids, we get to see the joy of fruitful labor of when I've had conversations in a missional community with you guys and we have those aha moments, that's fruit. You see lives symbolically shown in baptism of recognition that they're in Christ. We can't live for those really big, mountaintop, joyous, fruitful moments. If we live only for those, we'll die in lack of those. Are you aware of the small, momentary fruits to be found? Are you looking for those fruits? When someone comes to you in confidence, that's a fruit. They trust you to give them gospel hope. When you've fallen short with a brother and sister in Christ and you sin against them and yet they show you grace, that's a fruit. Repentance is a fruit. I'd encourage us to see that as we go out in this labor, it's not only joyful because the Lord causes the growth, but it's also a labor that is blessed tremendously. You see this in verse 39, as the Samaritan woman got to see that her labor was blessed immediately. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. 
Now, the context doesn't show us the depths of the interaction between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. It wouldn't be too outlandish to think that there was more occurred in the conversation than what we have record of because it was just Jesus and the woman there. But in his omniscience of knowing just as he knew with Nathaniel was enough for this woman to believe that he was the Christ. But we must note in verse 40, when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay and stay there two days. And many more believed because of his word, not just this woman's testimony. This woman's testimony was blessed in her labor because she went out and shared, but the true belief in the gospel came because of the testimony of his word. That's why they say in verse 42, it is no longer because of what you said we believe, for we have heard ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And he departs from there and goes to Galilee. What do I mean by this is a blessed labor? That laboring over souls will be blessed. Do you want your life to count for something? Slam dunk question. Yes, we all do. I used to pridefully think I want my life to mean something before I was in Christ, that I, I don't want to be forgotten to the pages of history. I want to be significant. I want to have an impact. I want the world to know who Kyle Worthy was, what pride, what vanity. But in this heartbeat of sin, of seeing how God can use that, now our desire should be, I want the world to know who Christ is. May he never go another moment without speaking about Christ. What does it mean to be blessed? It's to look at your labor in that truth. If you're not walking in this joyful labor of sharing the gospel, of inviting souls in, there's a, a, a bunch of different reasons as to why it could be. I wonder if you've been thinking about that even as I'm, I'm talking this morning. Well, maybe I, I'm just, evangelism's not my spiritual gift. Maybe I don't have that many people to share with. What, whatever the reason may be, I believe for all of us, it starts right here in our mind of how we perceive every relationship we have. Many of you guys know this story. Uh, I'll share it in brief about men's Bible study this week. I told you guys it's going to make its way into the sermon somehow. Long end of it is a guy came up at the end of our Bible study, encouraged us. It was Stetson Bennett, the starting quarterback for Georgia, his dad. And in that moment, I was just sitting there thinking about a man who has, has no clue who we are, but on his way from Blackshear to Athens in a town in between town in Milledgeville, Georgia, he sought to be faithful. Is that not what the woman at the well story is all about Jesus being faithful from one to the other and what blessing occurred there. I can't tell you how many of our guys were pumped up, not just because it was Stetson Bennett's dad, but because of what he shared. It was an encouragement. It was good. Why can we believe that a conversation with Stetson Bennett's dad can be successful and yet ours not be? We have no relationship with him. You have deep, meaningful, abiding, perhaps long-lasting for all of your physical life relationship with people. Your labor is blessed because Christ is the one who sent you into it. But again, I think it starts right here. What was Paul's mentality when it came to his labor? Is it fair again to say if Paul who probably the best Christian ever who lived, if this was his mentality, it should be our mentality? Is that a fair question? Paul, Philippians 1.22, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Paul's on the point of death. He doesn't know whether or not he'll be executed or whether he'll live, but he says, if I live, that means fruitful labor. Why? Not only because we're believing in this promise of God. Why? A resolve. Have you resolved that you will labor and that the Lord you believe will bless that labor? Ecclesiastes 3, as we mentioned, 1 and 2 says, For everything there is a season, 
And there is a time for every matter under the heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted. Have you planted that gospel seed? And is it now the appointed time of salvation in those conversations? Are you going forward with love and boldness and saying that it is appointed for man wants to live and wants to die after this, the judgment? What will you do when you stand before a holy, holy God and he says, did you know me? Are you going forward in that boldness, believing that the Lord will bless your words? Do you believe your labor will be fruitful? If not, you will not go. If you see the winds and the storms coming, you're not gonna go outside and, and hang out and go and spend time on the lake. Do you proverbially look at ministry in the same way as doom and gloom and see that I just can't do anything, I haven't seen anything, who, is a, who am I, where are we in Milledgeville? And you forget that the eternal God of the universe saved you into this ministry. No one lies to yourself like you do. No one discourages yourself like you do. No one gives justifications as to why you don't need to labor as much as you do. But no one is loved. And not loved by God in a way that will produce within them this perseverance and dependence on him. The repercussions of this are profound. We can labor confidently because the harvest the Lord is growing is plentiful. Why I can be so adamant about this is because God himself says the harvest of souls, of those who are going to trust and rest in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, is plentiful. Luke 10, 2. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The harvest is plentiful in Milledgeville. It's plentiful. There's souls coming in this door as we speak, being drawn to the holy God of the universe, the one that has saved our souls. And what has God called of us to do? He's not saying, believe that the harvest is plentiful. He's saying, go out, pray earnestly for laborers. Who are the laborers of this harvest? Us. We are the laborers. We are the ones to go and to, to build calluses on our hands, to sweat, to, to cry, to bleed for those who don't know Christ. We can labor no matter how difficult it is. Because again, God promises that we'll see a harvest. Galatians 6, 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Many, are you, many of you are on the precipice of giving up in general. much less not seeing this promise that if God is telling you not to give up in ministry, how much more so are you not to give up in life? We will reap if we do not give up. Believe Christ saved you into the labor of soul winning. He promises in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, Paul adamantly says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We can seem to be so timid at times. To some of us, I would call it timidity when we kind of pump the brakes on a sermon like this and say, yeah, that's great, but we can kind of hide our fear or timidity behind a veneer of pragmatism or practicality where we say it's not that practical, it's not that easy. Here are the words of the great Charles Spurgeon. Patience is a virtue, but sometimes decision is a greater one. To wait long as well, but not when the harvest is ripe and ready. 
for then it will lie upon the ground and rot and so be spoiled. To wait may be well, but not when men are dying. Nay, when hell is filling, not when immortal souls are in jeopardy, not when the plague is raging, and we have today in the stand between the living and the dead and wave the censure of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the plague may be stayed. Hell and heaven weigh in the balance, and a sovereign God holds them in his hand. And he has called us into that labor with a promise that it will be joyful, with a promise that it will actually revitalize and re-energize us. Have you been reconciled to God? You cannot enter this labor if the labor of God's work on Calvary has not been applied to you. Will you realize that you're apart from God because of your sin and God reconciled you. He brought you back, paid your debt. George Whitfield would say, would weeping, would tears prevail on you? I could wish my head were waters and my eyes fountains of tears that I might weep out every argument and melt you into love. But such power belongeth only to the Lord I can only invite. Why do I read that? for any soul here that needs to hear that in this room. I can only invite you to taste of the living waters that will satisfy in Christ forever. But every single one of us as we go in that labor, that would do us well to pray that same prayer. That your tears would prevail. That you would weep every argument. Weep is love and spirit, not just truth. Second Corinthians 5, 20 and 21 says, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That is your battle cry as you go out this week. You're an ambassador. You're a minister of reconciliation. You have a labor that will refuel you as you go and as you come back in, you will be encouraged and equipped by this body. And you have brothers and sisters who will go with you who want to see Christ become all in all to every person in this city. We used to say this often here, every person, every family, every neighborhood in Milledgeville. And I fear that we've not only forgotten that, but Functionally, we don't believe that, that the gospel can and will change. And functionally, why we have selectively chosen to forget that is because we look at ourselves far too often in gospel work. I was reminded of this faithful quote in our MC this week. I believe Alyssa said this, for every one look we take at ourselves, we must take 10 at Christ. That's not only just in your sin, your shame, so you can see God's mercy and compassion, but if you're looking to yourself to be faithful in ministry, you are going to be tired. You're going to have no joy. You're going to forget this is your labor, and you will not experience the blessing of fruitful labor. We stood right here this morning and prayed. We prayed so many things that the word would be received, that we would come in ready to receive it, that singing and preaching would impact our hearts. What my prayer for us this morning is that we would leave here changed. Because I can tell you as a general sense of this type of sermon standing here, you can see marked expression on faces. You can see encouragement, discouragement. You can see apathy. You can see when someone says, I know. And I pray none of that would be our response this week. But I believe and help me in my unbelief. Would you sustain me, Christ? Would you allow me to be faithful in this labor? 
So I send you out with this. I send you out into Milledgeville that's white for the harvest. Not with my own words, but with the word of the living God. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Father, thank you that our labor is not in vain because our debt is paid. If we were to labor in trying to bring souls to you of our own strength, it would be an endeavor and fruitfulness. But because you were poured out on Calvary, and because your spirit lives within us, and because you will return again, we have all the reason to labor faithfully. Would we see souls as you see them? In your Imago day, made with immeasurable worth and value. So Father, we pray all these things for your glory and by your power of your spirit alone. Amen.